All right, so we are in our third week of Baptist Essentials. If you look, I would recommend today, by the way, the course outline or the, the uh, class notes because uh, there are some details on here. But we have looked at what is a church and what is church membership. BJ took us through that and, and then looked last week at the church ordinances. What is the Lord's Supper? What is baptism? Uh, which are the entrance the entrance ordinances and the ongoing ordinances of being part of God's people. Today I'm going to talk about church discipline, and BJ is going to pick up next week again with elders and deacons, the officers of the church, and then elder-led congregationalism as kind of how the church is structured. So, now why would we be talking today at about church discipline in the context of what it means to be Baptist? Why would church discipline, which is not just practiced by Baptists, why, that's fairly, you know, that through a number of different branches of, of the faith, uh, practice church discipline, why would we talk about this in the context of what it means to be a Baptist church? And the reason goes back to the idea that we said was fundamental to Baptist thought, which is Baptists believe in regenerate church membership. Regenerate from the and, <laughs> gosh, BJ's being wacky in the back. Regenerate church membership. So regenerate comes. Regeneration comes from what chapter of the Bible, by the way? Regeneration. What does regeneration mean, and where does it come from in the scriptures? Regeneration. Going to call on somebody if you're not careful, Ricky. Okay, regeneration and the and the transformation that happens uh, be by believing and trusting in Christ, and that comes through regeneration. Literally, is just uh, the born again regeneration, again being born. And so, if I say born again, what chapter does that? ring a bell from. You must be born again. John something. John 3. John 3. He says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And he says, what on earth does that mean? I can't go into my mother's womb and be born again, can I? And he says, ah, you must be born of water and the spirit, which harks back to Ezekiel 36 and 37, where God sprinkles us with clean water through the coming of the spirit and makes us clean. Regeneration, which results, as Ricky so well said, in the transformation of life. Because when the Holy Spirit comes into a person, he does not leave them alone in their sin, but he begins to infuse his holiness into them. So, Baptists believe in regenerate church membership, that those who are part of God's church are only those who have believed the gospel, have believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, and are walking with him as a result of that transformation. So, and only those who have been changed by Christ through believing and repenting are part of God's church. And we believe that a local church is made up of believers in Jesus Christ who have experienced the transformation of the new birth, who are brought into the fellowship of the church through baptism, and who are sustained in their faith through participation in the Lord's table. Okay? Now, again, what does discipline have to do with that? Well, discipline 
is the process by which the church preserves the holy character of the church by saying those who are within the church must be holy. And how do we help one another to be holy? All right, so church discipline, there's two types. How many of you, by the way, think that you've been subject to church discipline? Don't. BJ BJ says yes, he's right. Because discipline, as you know if you're a parent, doesn't just involve corrective discipline. There are two types of discipline. There's what we call formative discipline, and there's corrective discipline. Formative discipline is the day-in and day-out training of a believer to walk in holiness. And how does that come? It comes through being incorporated into the life, the day-in and day-out life of Christ's church. So I would submit to you, you are right now, by being in this room, under church discipline, under the formative discipline of Redeeming Grace Church, as you are being taught and trained by the preaching of the word, the, uh, the practice of the ordinances, even this core seminar, right? So take it to the level of the family, right? When you train your kid in table manners, right, that's enculturating them, or, when you, uh, or, or, or however it is you do it in your household, and guess what? It's different from household to household, but you're enculturating them, that you're training them to be part of this particular family with the rules and obligations that come with being a part of this family. And a lot of that is, is just teaching and training, right? It's not, that's not negative, it's just every time I put my kids to bed and I pray with them when I go to bed, I'm, I'm disciplining them. Uh, I'm giving them formative discipline. Discipline just means training. We tend to think of it in the negative, but it just means training. So what are some examples within Redeeming Grace Church, examples of context in which you can experience formative discipline? Because I want that to stop being an unpleasant word. How are you disciplined in the course of your life at Redeeming Grace Church? Through hunger. Through hunger. How does that happen? How does that do that? Well, we're, study, we're studying the word together and we're encouraging each other to look at the Bible and kind of just challenge each other if we've got a wrong concept of an interpretation of the Bible. Okay, so in home group, you know, as the truth of God's word is opened up, that conforms us, if God's working in us, to the norms of the, of the scriptures that we're studying. Great. That's great, Heather. What are some other ways? What are some other things that are part of your formative discipline as a member of Redeeming Grace? Well, these seminars, I just even the concept you were talking about just now about formative discipline, I can see it now, but you know, until we unpack it here together, sometimes you just don't see it. Okay, yeah, so the opportunities for teaching and discussion. So let me ask you this. Uh, for those of you who are part of the discipling seminar last, last, you know, before Baptist Essentials, did any of you guys come away with a better understanding of what it means to be part of one another's lives in the, you know, helping one another get to heaven? If so, that was part of your formative discipline. That was part of you being conformed to the norms of God's word uh, through the teaching ministry of our church. What other contexts? Uh, Eric. 
Well, we have our four membership committees that are formative in a way. Yes. We will commit to them and we are, are advocating for them to participate in our body in a particular kind of way. Yeah, we're willing to bring in six new candidates for membership into membership tonight, and we're going to be asking them uh, to take vows which help them uh, stay in line with the uh, with the what God's word would call them to. Martha? I was just going to say uh, Sunday morning worship. Sunday morning worship, yeah. How does the singing, how does the singing, uh, is, how is singing, for instance, part of your formative discipline? Well, I'll say that. Yeah. Is that I grew up singing all kinds of really good hymns that I probably would have theology that it's in the hymns. And I remember those as they used as different part of the brain. Yeah, yeah, so the, the song, let's see, you know, and then we, when we think about think about the music that we're listening to and realizing how much does the music that we're listening to actually subtly affect our worldview, which means that we ought to probably be thinking about what we're listening to. But at the end of the day, the fact that the hymns of the faith and the songs of the faith are in our heads, you know, Monday through Saturday, not just on Sunday, because we're, we're singing them on a regular basis, is part of God molding us into the, into the character we need. BJ. I would just say it's my deep desire as your pastor to see our interpersonal relationships. For us to have clarity that our interpersonal relationships are not for the purpose of filling up our friendship bucket, but are for the purpose of discipleship. Um, that can be formal and informal, but our, our interpersonal relationships are for the purpose of us edifying, encouraging, strengthening, praying, being involved in one another's lives to help one another get to heaven. So just literally seeing the totality of our relationships as being encompassed underneath discipleship. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the... anything in the context of the church life that is molding you into the mold of Christ is formative discipline. Now, there's, there is the other side to it. There's corrective discipline. There's formative discipline and there's corrective discipline. In the home, there's... Uh, there's formative discipline where you're training your kids. There's corrective discipline when they go off the rails. And in the same way, in Christ's church, which is his body, which is his family, there is corrective discipline. So I would argue that I would maybe define corrective discipline as the loving correction of a wayward believer who is not walking in holiness in order that they might be... might repent and be restored to faithfulness. You know, I never actually read my definition. I will for the tape. Formative discipline, the day-in, day-out training of a believer to walk in holiness, which comes through being incorporated into the life of Christ's church. Corrective discipline, when we're not walking in holiness, it's correction that we might repent and be restored to faithfulness. Now, who's responsible for church discipline, whether formative or corrective? And I would say that it's appropriate that both kinds of church discipline, both the formative and the corrective, be led by the elders who are called to be the shepherds and the teachers of God's flock. But ultimately, where the scripture places the ultimate responsibility for the welfare of our brothers and sisters is the whole congregation. The whole congregation is responsible for the welfare of its members and for the purity of the church itself. So if you're a member of Redeeming Grace Church, the buck stops with you in a very real and significant way. You can't say, like Cain did, am I my brother's keeper? 
the reality is you are your brother's keeper. And how, how do we define that? We define that through our membership, right? I don't feel responsible for... I'm not responsible in that same way for the members, either as an elder or as a brother, for the members of my brothers and sisters over at Georgia Plains Baptist Church, even though they're fellow Christians... I'm not responsible for their holiness in the same way that I'm responsible for your holiness and you for me, right? That's why we're a community covenanted together in order that we might help one another. But you all, if you're a member of our church, are responsible for the spiritual well-being of your brothers and sisters. And you have that, that takes on responsibility. Um, so corrective discipline specifically... Specifically, corrective discipline. We're going to spend most of our time. Formative discipline almost was covered in the last class, uh, you know, the discipleship class. But corrective discipline, we're going to spend most of our time on that today. And the, first, I want to set the context. The context is that we would have a healthy culture of small scale correction. A healthy culture of small scale correction. Now, If that brings to your mind that we're going around nitpicking at each other, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that what's normal, it should be normal and regular in the part of every Christian's life that we be in one another's life to help us when we're going off a little bit. So it should be normal and regular part of every Christian's life to be confessing sin to one another within the church. To live transparently with one another in the church. To live our lives as relatively open books that we might receive the help and feedback of one another. And to lovingly be helping one another to follow Jesus. What does this look like? Well, ideally what it looks like is One brother or sister exhorting another brother or sister in love. And that person receiving the correction with gratitude and walking more consistently as a Christian as a result. So, for instance, if if you see me and you're watching my life and over the course of time you are watching me have an unhealthy pattern that you're noticing. Let's say I'm going around one week being just short with everybody, just clipped in how I'm communicating, easily annoyed. What would be a good and appropriate way that you could help me through small-scale corrective discipline? You think you should just let me be because I'm probably a pretty busy guy. Well, you might overlook it. Well, you know, love covers a multitude of sins. That's true. But what might be appropriate for you to do? Just mention it to you. What would you do to mention it to me? How might you mention it to me, Dave? What might you? How might you have that conversation? Uh, friend, it seems like you're a little out of sorts uh, this week. Something going on. Okay. Right? It seems like you're a little out of sorts this week with something going on. What are my <laughs> possible responses? Nah. I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> Why are you asking? <laughs> right? I can act with defensiveness, right? And evasion. That's not good, right? You know, let's say let's say my initial response is to Dave is I'm fine. Yeah. 
What, how could they continue to help me? Even though it might take a little bit of time. You don't seem fine. Say what? You don't seem fine. You don't seem fine. Is there anything going on? Right? So is he coming in with a sledgehammer, a 15-pound sledge, to take out my kneecaps by doing that? No. He's watching his brother go a little off. And he's caring enough to say, I wonder what's going on underneath that. And can I be helpful? Now, if he's just looking to, you know, that has, that, that of, of course assumes he's trying to be helpful, right? We're doing this because we're trying to be helpful to one another, you know. But is Dave's act an act of love or an act uh, that, I sh- that, uh, that I should resent? It's, it's an act of love, Right? It's an act of love. Now, what if it was a more substantial thing than just being clipped? What if you were watching me? Uh, what if you were watching me depart from the truth of the gospel in some way? What if I was flirting with the idea, some heretical idea? What might you have the responsibility to do? Doesn't it say that you you approach your brother or sister and? talk to them about it. If that doesn't work, then you bring somebody else along. And if that doesn't work, then you go to the elders. Yeah, there's a whole process that can be involved. But the reality is, you should care that I'm starting to drift. Now, now, what happens in a lot of contexts and in a lot of churches when, when people are starting to drift away from faithfulness to Christ? What happens in a lot of cases is that that's just allowed to happen. Because guess what? It's tricky. It's tricky to get in and say something that's a little hard. Right? Sonia's going like this. Yeah, it's, it's a little like this to say that. And it's even harder to do it in love as opposed to just cutting that person off, right? That's, that's the, the discipline of the world right now, right? You say something, and then they're dead to you, right? That's a form of discipline, but that's not loving, is it? The, the goal is for us to be able to be confronting sin gently in one another's lives in order that we might be restored to holiness, And that's something that we ought to be doing in one another's lives, and we ought to be welcoming it when others do it in our lives. Welcoming it when others do it in our lives. Which means if you have brothers and sisters that are seeking to speak into your situation, and your consistent response is this, then then that's not good. That's not good. We ought to be welcoming one another's correction. This ought to be normal. The importance of why this culture needs to be in place, there's many reasons, but one of the reasons is if this culture of being kindly and lovingly and, and, and really in one another's lives, if that's not there, then when a more serious situation arises that requires a stronger response 
and a more serious case, then if you begin to engage the church discipline process, then that's like, well, where did that come from? We don't, if we never talk about sin and in the context of our church and really work it out, then when we have to deal with something big, it's going to be like, well, what are we doing? What's, what's this? This sounds judgy. This sounds judgmental. We never t- deal with sin in our church. Yeah. And that's been a problem. Right, we actually need to have a culture where we're working, work, working through sin in our lives, so that we can actually be keeping one another within the bounds of grace. Right, we need to be seeing correction and discipline in positive terms, so that we can, so that we can work together to help one another in realistic ways. All right, two key texts. Two key texts about church discipline. Matthew 15, I'm sorry, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Let me just read this for you. These are two key texts about how a church discipline process is carried out. All right. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, then you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven meaning that the church actually has authority to take these actions. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on, about, on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. All right, so this lays out a section for when a brother is in sin and is unrepentant. It's a multiple-step process, a step that we have then codified and, and we have it in our Constitution as to how the broad categories of how we would carry it out. But notice, this is a command of the Lord Jesus. This is a command of the Lord Jesus. The first step, someone's in sin. He's confronted about it in private. Right? Who goes the first time? How many people? One. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. One person. He refuses to repent. He's not interested in, in turning from that. The second step is two or three go so that everything may be established. The, all through the scriptures, what's the, what's the standard? Uh, the, the standard is every fact can only be established by two or three witnesses. It's never just on one person say so. So two or three go to exhort the brother to repent. What if he still refuses? If he still refuses, he's still resisting, still unwilling to turn from his sin, the situation is brought before the whole church, the whole assembly. In our case, we specify that that would be the members. Uh, that's why we have, sometimes we have a members meeting, and we say, excuse, you know, we, we would say, excuse me, would we, um, uh, this is only for the members of Redeeming Grace Church. Visitors, we love you, but we need to have a family meeting. Um, If he refuses to listen to the whole church, when the whole church is informed about this sad situation, then the church begins to exhort him. And if he still refuses to listen to the whole church, he's to be treated as an outsider, an unbeliever, tax collector, right? Gentile, excluded from the church body. 
right? Only, of course, if he's unwilling to repent and turn from his sin. Not for the sin itself, but for the unrepentance from the sin. Now, the other one is 1 Corinthians 5, which we preached not too long ago, but we'll read it again. This is a slightly different situation. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. He's sleeping with his stepmother. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Okay. This is a case of open, known, flagrant sin. The whole congregation is aware of this situation. And instead of mourning over it, they are proud of it. We won't get into all the nuances of why. And Paul is very stern in saying he, he calls them to account for the fact that they haven't dealt with this person's sin. And he says, this, allowing this sin to remain unrebuked among you is like yeast that's working itself. Sin is like yeast that's working itself through the whole dough. If you allow this situation to continue, the, the whole congregation is going to be contaminated through, uh, through contact with this sin and allowing this sin to remain and flourish. Right? Sin is contagious in that sense. And so what he calls them to do is to assemble... Right? So the church is to gather, and then with the authority of Jesus, deliver this man back. And when it says deliver him unto Satan, it's talking about delivering him back into Satan's realm. Where does Satan rule? Does he rule in the church or in the world? In the world. Does he rule in the church? No. So the church is to deliver him over to Satan, meaning deliver him back into the, out of the church and into the world which means this means essentially to exclude him from the church body, which is the same thing as what Jesus said to do. Exclude him from the church body, exclude him from membership in the church. And what's the purpose? The purpose is that he might actually turn and be saved at the end of the day. Now, why? We're going to take some questions in a bit, but why should a congregation practice church discipline? From this text, why do we need to have this in our toolbox as a category to help one another on our way to heaven. So why does a congregation need to practice church discipline, even though this is a painful process, a process we'd rather not go through? But why is it needed? Number one, you see this at the bottom of the page, to expose sin. See, sin loves the darkness, right? Sin loves the darkness. Sinners don't want to be exposed and come into the light. Sin grows in the dark. Discipline exposes sin for what it is that it might be removed. Okay, a second reason. It's to warn. It's to warn the person that's being disciplined, and it's to warn the whole church. The church 
does not enact God's wrath towards sin, right? We cannot, we cannot uh, execute any, any eternal punishment for, against sin. That's not our job. But our job is to render a judgment that acts as a dim picture and a warning of the great judgment that is to come. By taking a a brother or sister who is unwilling to repent and removing them from the security and safety of the church and placing them outside where Satan reigns, that is a picture of being cut off from God's people forever and delivered over to Satan finally. It's a little enactment of a sure and certain and terrible judgment that is to come. Now, we don't have anything to do in that, right now with that judgment, but we actually are supposed to say to the brother or sister, you are acting in such a way that we are concerned that you will be subject to that final judgment. You're acting like a non-Christian. We're warning you that your soul is in danger because of your unrepentance. So to expose sin, to warn... To save. The aim of discipline is restorative. It's to wake the person up to the seriousness of sin that his spirit may be saved. This is why church discipline is loving. And it has as its goal restoration. The goal is never to exclude the person and keep them excluded. But just as, just as in parenting, sometimes a stern punishment sometimes has to be issued in order to be a shock to the system to wake the kid up that this is really, we're dealing with something serious here. And in the same way, uh, in the same way, this, this severe discipline, and it is, it ought to feel severe, of finally excluding someone from our, uh, from our membership is to wake them up and say, what am I thinking? Why am I running from Jesus? Why am I running from my brother? i got to get right so that he repents and comes back and we receive him again with joy. So the aim is salvation. Number four, it preserves the church's witness. See, the Corinthian church's witness was at risk. They were tolerating a sin that even the Gentiles were, 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 were repulsed by. They were tolerating things that the Gentiles were saying, that's evil. And they were celebrating them. That destroyed, that was on the brink of destroying their witness. So the church's task of drawing a clear line between the world and God's people gets lost if we tolerate the sin in our midst and don't seek to address it or deal with it. If the church looks just like the world and there's no difference between what we what we allow within our walls and what the church does and what the world does, then we lose our distinctive witness. Number five, it protects the church's purity. Again, he says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And so sin, if left unchecked, will spread through a church. You know, let's think about a, 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 a classroom of kids, classroom of third graders. What happens if one kid starts acting up and the teacher does nothing to check that behavior? What's going to happen? It's going to be just that kid and only that kid that's ever going to act up, right? That's not going to spread at all. Of course it'll spread. 
Once, once that sin, once that misbehavior in the context of that is, is left without being addressed, then it begins to spread. And in the same way, one of the fruit of church discipline that ought to manifest itself is that the rest of the congregation examines their own lives having a renewed sensitivity for and hatred of sin. That should be part and parcel of the church discipline process if we're in the sad position of having to work through uh, this process with a particular member. It ought to be saying, wow, is there sin in my life that needs to be addressed? And finally, it preserves the church's nature. Again, the church is made up of those who have been regenerated, those who have been born again. When a person persists in unrepentance, if I refuse to repent of of significant sin in my life, and I refuse the counsels of the church, and I refuse to turn back to Jesus, that does put my profession of faith in question. God's people are not an unrepentant people. God's people don't characteristically remain unrepentant. And so my unrepentance puts a great big question mark as to whether or not I'm really a believer. Such a great big question mark that excommunication, taking that final step of church discipline, is the church saying to the straying person, we can no longer affirm your claim to belong to Christ. If we were to allow you to continue to come to the table and be among us as if nothing was wrong, we would be doing you this disservice. Your claim seems invalid, or we're worried that it's invalid. So it preserves the fact God's people are to be holy. We don't have the right to change that and say, it's okay for this person to be among us and be radically unholy and unrepentantly unholy. We don't have the right to change the character of God's church. He determines that. Be ye holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. All right, what sins require church discipline? Here's what I'd say about that, right? You know, especially this formal process. I'm not now talking quite about Dave coming to me and, and you know, dealing with the fact that I've been short with some people. Um, Rather than making a list of sins that are disciplinable and others that aren't, it's better to just approach this by drawing basic principles from Scripture that guide us. So Paul calls the church to make a judgment that's based on observable evidence. See, God sees and knows all things, including the motives of our hearts, but we can't, right? We can't know for sure what's in one another's hearts. We're not even great at knowing what's in our own hearts. We're limited in our perspective, so Scripture calls the church to look at the outward fruit of someone's life. But that assessment isn't omniscient. We we have to realize we don't know everything. We're limited in our perspective. And so as a result, that that leads us to, to probably limit what we would discipline for. Sins that are outward and very observable, sins that are serious, and of course, sins that are unrepentant. Right? Outward. For us to judge, we have to be able to see or hear the sinful behavior, which in part is why Jesus calls for two or three witnesses to be able to observe it. It needs to be serious, 
you know, there just needs to, there does need to be just a place in the life of the church where we're loving one another, and that's covering over a multitude of transgressions, right? If Elisa were to, especially, how does it work in our household? If Elisa were to bring every time I do anything that's sinful against her, she'd just be kind of correcting me from morning until night. I'm sure she'd do it in love. But, it just, like, there's just a lot that we're able to just pass over, right? And that's okay, and that's good, that's right for love to cover a multitude of transgressions. Um, we're bearing with one another in our weakness. And yet when serious, serious sin is there, we, it has to be addressed. Um, and it has to be unrepentant. A person who's professing Christ but refuses to let go of sin, that person is liable to church discipline. And whether or not the person is repentant is what the church needs to try and determine. So it's not just that someone's, right? Because this is, you know, the Matthew 18 passage is interesting because Jesus immediately follows it by a question from Peter. Peter's like, well, Jesus, if my brother sins against me seven times and seven times he comes back and asks my forgiveness and, and, you know, should I forgive him? And Jesus is like, you don't even get it, do you? He's like, not seven times, but 77 times. And then he proceeds to tell the, the, the story of the unforgiving servant. And the point being, we stumble, and we stumble again and again and again. The question isn't whether we sin, but the question is, are we repenting for sin? Are we turning from sin? That's why discipline is only in place when the sin is unrepentant. All right, who is involved in church discipline? Number one, as few people as is required... Right? Starts with one, goes to two or three. Only if they're resisting at the work of the Lord through the exhortation of those, those witnesses would it come to the whole church. But it then eventually does have to go to the whole church. So as many as are required, but no more than is required is the best practice. The elders should lead in the process in light of their responsibility to lead the congregation and give oversight and shepherd, right? it's appropriate that the elders take the lead. But ultimately, responsibility lies with you, lies with the congregation, not only to create the culture of living transparently and dealing with sin and receiving correction and giving correction in love, but then in this particular case, let's say we're actually at stage three where something something. Hard is happening, and we've had to let the congregation know because the person's unrepentant. Then it's your responsibility to to plead with the person who's caught in sin if you have a relationship with them that allows for that, to plead with them to repent, to pray for their repentance, and ultimately, if they continue to stiff-arm God's people, continue to stiff-arm God's word, then ultimately it's the act of the congregation uh, to remove the straying person if they continue in unrepentance. That's the work of the congregation. That's the, Jesus says, if you tell it to the church and he doesn't repent, then let him be to you. Not tell the elder board. It's tell the church. When someone has been excommunicated, how do we interact with them? Well, it would mean that they would be excluded from the Lord's table, which is the ongoing sign of the covenant relationship between Jesus and his people. We come to the table. So a person who has been un, who's under discipline in that sense wouldn't be allowed to come to the table, which shows that we're 
we're saying we, don't, we can't be confident you have access to Jesus Christ. It would change our relationships. It wouldn't be appropriate to continue in normal brotherly fellowship. It wouldn't be appropriate in that context to say, hey, let's get a meal together and let's just chew the fat. Right? It says, it says he needs to be to you as, as a tax collector. Right? So there's a, a certain amount of distancing that happens. Not unloving, but to, to, to say, we can't, I can't continue to, to interact with you as if everything's okay. And, but then 1 Thessalonians 3.15 says, says this, don't regard him as an enemy. Don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Your heart is still for him. Your heart is desirous to see him restored. And then how do we restore someone, um, someone who's been excommunicated? Well, if someone turns back at any step of the process has exit ramps, right? If, if you go to your brother and he repents, then you've won your brother. Exit ramp. What if he doesn't repent when you talk to him, but when the two or three witnesses come and talk to him, then, then he repents. Exit ramp. Everything's great again. If, he, if it goes all the way and you tell the church and he listens to the church, exit ramp. But if all those things happen and, and he has to be removed from membership, then if he repents, we welcome him back with gladness. Once characteristic repentance can be established, we welcome him back with no second-class status. Paul, and actually, not for time's sake, I just direct you to 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11, where Paul has, in Corinth, a, a member, a person, and it's maybe the guy in 1 Corinthians 5, has, has repented of his sin, and, there, and, he, and Paul's like, bring him back! Be happy for him! Just welcome him with open arms! He's repented! You know, all, everything's done. So we're, we're, we're interested in, in receiving our, our brothers and sisters back upon repentance. What's the big picture, folks? You and I actually need the discipline of the church. We all need training. And we all sometimes need correction. And I, I say this when I'm doing a membership interview. I say... It, it should be comforting to you that your church family will go after you if you start going astray from Jesus. That should be a comfort to you that we would not just let you go astray without trying to bring you back. You should want that. You should want that. That's how much we care about you. Reality is God is holy. He cares about the holiness of his people and we don't have the right to decide we're going to be more merciful than God, which of course is impossible, and refuse to deal with sin in the Lord's holy congregation. We actually have to preserve the holiness of God's church. That is the merciful thing to do. So we practice church discipline for the holiness of God's name and for the eternal good of one another. Well, I'd hoped I'd have more time for questions, but I'll take a couple. Take a couple. Lot there. I'll ask one. Yeah, Jim. Um, When doing the Matthew 18 thing and moving from one to one, 
to pulling in witnesses, are there principles that we can keep in mind to uh, avoid gossip scenarios? Like, what's the distinction between gossip and healthy escalation? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Uh, Jimmy asked, what's the difference in moving from I talk to my brother in private and then bringing along two or three? How do I, how do I distinguish escalating that situation as Jesus would tell me to do versus just gossiping? Well, number one, it has to be for the purpose of actually bringing about a resolution to the situation, which is often different than when we gossip. Often when we gossip, we're just venting. We're not actually interested in bringing help on board. So that's a, probably the biggest distinction. Uh, and then I think who we who we ask, right? You're not interested in you're interested in bringing on people of maturity and wisdom on board, uh, who have the leverage to be able to help. So I think it, I think wisdom would would dictate who you talk to and who you ask. Probably you'd want to talk to people who know that particular brother fairly well, brother or sister. Come talk to me. My goal is to help you see that this is good. That this should be sweet in our mouths, actually, even though it's painful to go through. But as as Hebrews 12 says, all discipline seems painful at the time, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. God disciplines those whom he loves. Discipline is an act of love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time. We ask you, Lord, to preserve the the purity and holiness of Redeeming Grace Church. Lord, may the micro-cultures that we create be sufficient to keep us in line with the, the principles of your grace, that we might not walk as we used to walk, but might walk in holiness of life, that we might walk in accordance with truth and righteousness. And Lord, may that... Uh, Maybe we'd be quick to respond to the the loving correction of our brothers and sisters. Uh, And Lord, uh, keep our church as a place of both deep, deep holiness and profound love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.